This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm David Lipson. Coming up, a major overhaul on the cards for Queensland's Troubled Crime and Corruption Commission. Could it be a useful model for a national integrity body? And remembering two singers who brought Australian pop to the world, Judith Durham and Olivia Newton-John. They were both quite relatively small people physically. But I think the thing about Olivia and Judith, if I can combine them a bit, is that people often underestimated them. But first, it's been years since US politics resembled anything close to normal. But the FBI raid on former President Donald Trump's private residence earlier this week pushed it further into unprecedented territory. So developing tonight, former President Donald Trump says the FBI has searched his Mar-a-Lago home. It would mark a dramatic escalation by law enforcement into the former president. The moment agents set foot on the plush grounds of Mar-a-Lago, a simmering legal dispute became a political fight with explosive implications. Tonight, the Washington Post is quoting sources who were saying that investigators were searching for classified nuclear documents and other items and that there was some deep concern among officials about the material potentially ending up in the wrong hands. And with speculation mounting over whether Donald Trump will run again for president in 2024, the operation's been seen as a risky gamble by the Department of Justice. I think it's another unjust made-up thing like the impeachment hoaxes. President Trump is investigated because they're scared that he's running and he will win again. I know what this is all about. Weaponized DOJ, weaponized FBI, weaponized the IRS. That's what they've been doing. It's all playing out ahead of crucial midterm elections when Democrats are desperately hoping to keep control of Congress and the ability to pursue their legislative agenda. But there really is no precedent in our country for a sitting government to conduct this kind of a search at the home of a former president. Michael Duffy is opinions editor at the Washington Post and a former Time magazine correspondent and editor. We tend to let our former presidents sort of drift off into history. Uh, Most of them are happy to do so. Uh, Even those who want to run again don't tend to run quite so afoul of the law or the Justice Department that this would happen. So it's it's unprecedented both uh, in terms of it happening before, but also that a government would even seek this course. Uh, and I and I suspect that the hardest part for the Justice Department is is actually taking the step that no government has taken before. Why is it considered to be so serious to mishandle documents or to retain presidential documents after you leave office? Um, it's a good question. Uh, the classified information is is tricky because it presents a security risk, obviously. Uh, Trump was sloppy. That's lax to sloppy when he was president about the way he talked about and handled classified material. Presidents do have a lot of authority to declassify things, but there are certain things that they just shouldn't talk about. And there's certain documents that no one should have because they represent... Uh, too much of a risk either to the government or interest in the government or sources in the government. So those things tend to be kept very closely for for any government around the world. But I'm guessing that if it were just a simple classified information search, this, we might not be in this almost, you know, in this, it's, this feels like a very different kind of crisis where both sides are calling the others 
really bad names and uh, as if everything is on the line here. Yeah, as you allude to, this has very rapidly and, and quite dramatically become extremely political. This did not happen without Joe Biden's explicit approval. Of the course. White House approved of this. No one at the White House was given uh, a heads up. No, that did not happen. In those terms, has it done anything to, to hurt or, or help Donald Trump politically? Well, this is one of those situations where we just should take a breath and wait. You know, there was a lot of reporting in the immediate, I'd say, 24 to 48 hours that this was such a benefit to Trump to be in the crosshairs of the Biden Justice Department that it automatically meant that he would not only run again in 2024, but that he would get in soon. I'll believe that when he gets in. Because he uh, certainly I, seemed to think it was a benefit to him. He was the one who released the information about the raid. It broke the news. He's been fundraising off it, uh, all these yes. conspiracy theories about the deep state. It sort of plays into that narrative as well, doesn't it? Yes. Well, he'll fundraise off anything he can, and whether it's for a campaign or just generally. So I don't think that really indicates that he's he's running. And again, I think you, you watch what they do, not what they say. Mm. And so I think, yes, definitely a benefit, but whether it actually means he's running and, and, and that other people who might run against him for the nomination don't run, that's the tell we're looking for, and we haven't seen that yet. It seems like, or at least it has been painted as, a considerable risk for the Justice Department to, to conduct this this unprecedented action on, a, on an ex-president in such a a kind of, uh, you know, deeply divided and, and hotly contested environment, a, a febrile political environment, if you like. Mm -hmm. What's your mm -hmm. view on that? I think that is, I think it is a huge risk. You know, don't forget, Joe Biden isn't going to be president forever. And someday Republicans will take over the Congress and, and they can launch their own investigations of Joe Biden if they take over the administration. So we do pride ourselves, rightly or wrongly, on not investigating, you know, pol your political opponents here. And, and that has some benefits. It tends to keep politics from becoming a blood sport. But as you noted, our politics are already a blood sport. And I, I, I think that the risk to the Justice Department is, is by going down this road, they're inviting similar treatment from whoever comes next in the White House. And, and the Biden folks aren't completely immune from prosecution. You know, the, the president's son, Hunter, is the subject of almost constant scrutiny. And, and you can bet that this step that the attorney general took this week probably guarantees that Hunter Biden will be in someone's crosshairs soon. All of this, of course, has overshadowed what was otherwise a pretty successful week early on for Joe Biden, his climate and tax bill passed the Senate. Uh, will any of that help the Democrats in, in the midterms coming up? Well, it probably doesn't hurt them. Um, it, it's hard to know if it, if it helps them. Legislative action is, is good. The best thing that's going on in the country for the Democrats is that the price of gas is falling fast from about $5 a gallon a few weeks ago to under 4 now in many places. That's a huge boon to him. And other, I suspect as a result, other prices will fall, perhaps not as quickly. And so that's an advantage for Biden that's sort of incalculable. Um, is it enough to help him hold either the House or the Senate? I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical about that. I think at the same time that the general atmosphere, David, for Democrats is improving and, and improving quickly. The, the Trump, Donald Trump had a very good week in the Republican primaries around the country with most of the candidates he endorsed winning. 
which means his folks, his guys, his candidates will be on the ballot this fall. That probably strengthens his hand inside the Republican Party. It uh, doesn't mean he's going to win those seats at all, but his grip on the GOP does not appear to have weakened much this week. And if anything looks stronger, even amid these challenges he's having legally. Michael Duffy is opinions editor at The Washington Post. Australia's various corruption-busting agencies are used to handing down scathing findings and claiming the occasional high-profile political scalp. This week, though, it was Queensland's Crime and Corruption Commission under the microscope and subject to recommendations of an overhaul. The report is very clear here that there needs to be better checks and balances. There are 32 recommendations, and on the face of them, there is nothing here that I cannot see our government implementing. It's been 33 years since the bombshell Fitzgerald inquiry exposed systemic corruption in Queensland. Well, the first Fitzgerald inquiry in the late 1980s started off as an investigation into police corruption, but really exposed that there was not only systemic corruption in the Queensland police force at the time, but that it was linked to widespread political corruption and subversion of decision-making in Queensland. AJ Brown is Professor of Public Policy and Law from the School of Government and International Relations at Griffith University. So it ultimately led to the prosecution and jailing of several cabinet ministers, um, to the resignation of the Premier, Joe Bjelke-Peterson, um, and ultimately to the loss of government by, by the then National Party government, but more importantly led to a whole suite of recommendations about systemic reform to the institutions of Queensland, including the creation of what is now relatively state-of-the-art anti-corruption infrastructure. Fast forward several decades and the former judge, Tony Fitzgerald, has come out of retirement to examine the state's Crime and Corruption Commission amid concerns about its impartiality and independence, all sparked by a corruption probe into Logan City Council. I mean, what happened at Logan City Council was that the CEO of the council blew the whistle on suspected corruption and misconduct by particularly the mayor of the council. And that led to an investigation which has led to criminal charges which are still on foot so that the mayor of Logan City Council is still on trial answering those charges as a result of that investigation commenced by that whistleblower disclosure. But what happened along the way was that the Crime and Corruption Commission also proceeded to try and protect that whistleblower by charging the council members who voted to sack that whistleblower uh, with fraud. And so those charges had to be later withdrawn because they were just the wrong charges for what was effectively a whistleblower protection matter. And it's that controversy. It's the fact that the Crime and Corruption Commission charged those councillors with fraud uh, as a result of them voting to sack the whistleblower that the entire controversy has unfolded since then. This week, after a six-month investigation, Tony Fitzgerald recommended a shake-up of the Triple C, which some say could be a useful blueprint for a national integrity body. The most recent examination by Tony Fitzgerald and another retired Queensland judge, Alan Wilson, really looks at two issues. One is whether in fact the power to charge people with any criminal offence, fraud or anything, should stay with the commission and also the use of seconded police officers by the commission um, because it was seconded police officers who ran the investigation and, and lay those charges. So those are the two issues that 
this particular inquiry looked at, not judging the behaviour or the conduct of the Commission, but judging the question of whether it should still have those powers. The reporters recommended that the C should consult with the DPP, public prosecutors, before laying charges and reduce the reliance on police investigators, I guess. Some say the C has had its investigative powers clipped. Now, critics of other agencies have called for similar things in New South Wales and Victoria and elsewhere. How do you balance, do you think, the power, the extraordinary power, really, that's required to investigate corruption against the need for the presumption of innocence, for example? Well, I think I think this is a good demonstration that it is an ongoing balance. In this case, in fact, it, the, these reviews and, and this inquiry really confirmed that the Crime and Corruption Commission was not massively out of control. What, what we're talking here is some tweaks to tighten up the relationship between its investigations and the laying of charges. The use of, of seconded police officers, again, the inquiry has recommended that that, that that continue, but that there be real investment in more training and development of police and others, civilians, lawyers, forensic accountants, to be able to conduct non-criminal investigations more effectively into corruption, because very often corruption is not necessarily clearly criminal or not not certainly at the outset. So they're both important lessons for all anti-corruption commissions, including what needs to happen federally. So with so much focus right now on a federal anti-corruption commission and amid concerns in some quarters at least, that the unelected investigators of such a body could be given too much power to probe our elected officials. What can be learnt from Queensland's experience? Well, I think what we can learn is that there is a best practice. There is a sweet spot to be found on these sorts of questions about the powers and the responsibilities of an anti-corruption body. Um, The Queensland story is confirmation that corruption sometimes is criminal. So the federal anti-corruption body has to has the, have the capacity to be able to, to run effective criminal investigations, which lead to prosecutions. The other really big lesson um, from all of this, which is where the whole saga in Queensland started, is that it is vital that an anti-corruption commission be able to ensure that whistleblowers are protected and that the protection powers are very clear. Really, the, the, the outstanding part of the story, the part of the jigsaw in Queensland is that there needs to be a very serious overhaul of whistleblower protection laws in Queensland in order to rectify that fundamental problem at the beginning that the Commission had, was trying to do two jobs and there was a conflict between those jobs and the whistleblower protection responsibility was compromised and led to some really severe problems, including the fact that the whistleblower ended up not protected. Does it also tell us that whatever the corruption-busting agency, whichever state it's from, there is a need for constant review, scrutiny and and careful consideration of, of the powers that they do have in an effort to make such a body as, as good as it can be. So it is a confirmation that things evolve over time. Oversight and continual improvement needs to be built into the system through a parliamentary committee and through an inspector that helps monitor the commission and, and answers to a parliamentary committee. Those are all features that I think we can expect to see will be built into a federal commission. And, uh, and I think it's very important that we accept that those arrangements need to be strong, particularly because there will be backlashes. I mean, if an anti-corruption body is doing its job, then it will disrupt powerful people. Um, it will make life difficult for people who, um, who are engaged in suspect practices or who have got used to, to exercising their power in a particular way 
which needs to be changed for the sake of getting on top of and, and preventing and dealing with corruption issues. So there's going to be backlashes. There's no question about that. Uh, what we need to do is make sure that there's a strong system of oversight so that the political support across the spectrum for the fundamental function of an anti-corruption commission remains. AJ Brown is Professor of Public Policy and Law from the School of Government and International Relations at Griffith University. Maybe I hang around here a little more than I should. Well, Australia mourned the death of two female music stars this week, Judith Durham and Olivia Newton-John. But I got something to tell you that I never thought. The idea of an Australian pop star didn't really exist. There, was, there wasn't a template for it until, ironically, Judith Thurum and Olivia Newton-John, um, who was lost in the space of three days. I love you. I honestly love you. Both women had very different styles and shot to fame more than a decade apart, but they also both put Australian music on the world stage. Liz Jeffrey is a senior lecturer in music and sound design at the University of Technology, Sydney. Judith was one of the first women to be really internationally recognised from Australia. And that's a really big deal because she paved the way for other women to go forward. And what was really important about the industry that she was in at the time, you know, she was at the height of the US, the UK and Australian charts in the 60s with the Seekers and they were competing with and literally beating at times the Rolling Stones Mm. and the Beatles, you Mm. know, so they're as big as you can get. And what was so important about her was that she wasn't at a time when there was lots of talk about gimmicks, there was lots of talk about how people would look on stage and what personas they might put on. It was the really thing about her was just her sheer talent. She had such a sheer talent that you just couldn't deny. And is that talent solely what sort of allowed her to pave that way to to sort of break through those barriers on the world stage? Yeah, I think so. I mean, of course, there's right place, right time and all of those happy accidents that happen. But I think, you know, and she had a pedigree. She had trained at, you know, Melbourne Conservatorium as a jazz pianist and had worked as a classical pianist, should I say, and had worked as a jazz performer in Australia too. So she definitely knew her way around an audience, if you know what I mean. She knew her way around industry. And so I think it's that combination of raw talent, right place, right time, putting in the work, of course, too, you know, because she and the Seekers picked up and went to the UK thinking, oh, we're only going away for a few weeks and then sort of didn't come home for a while, (laughs) you know. So they just, they had all that perfect storm of stuff all going on. When they did come home, when they did perform in Australia, they did so in in front of some massive crowds, didn't they? Our broadcast friends have just heard about half a million people here at the Sydney Maya Music Bowl. I think we should all be very proud, ladies and gentlemen, of the fact that today's guest artists are Australians. Australians who have proved themselves in their musical capacities internationally. Yeah, well, the Maya Music Bowl, I mean, depending on who you speak to, the numbers get bigger and bigger as to how many people were there. <laughs> but I think that's that's the nice thing about it, you know, is that they had these massive homecomings. There's something like 200,000 there last, last I heard. Is that is that possible? Yeah, 
Oh, well, I mean, but again, I'm a little bit nervous to let the truth get in the way of a good story necessarily. <laughs> I think the, the takeaway is it was huge, mm. you know, and at the time too when you're thinking about a time when there's no social media so people can't just stream it or catch up later on TikTok or any of those things, you kind of had to be there. Then on Tuesday this week, uh, another big shock, the death of Olivia Newton-John, a very different pop icon but another Australian who really made it big on the world stage. Yeah, and what was interesting about Olivia, I mean, while Judith had that kind of jazz and folk pedigree, Olivia sort of came up in the pop world. She actually started on Sing, Sing, Sing as part of a talent quest with Johnny O'Keefe. You know, so she was right in the middle of pop and she was born in Britain, so she was able to actually compete for Britain in Eurovision in the year that ABBA won. (laughs) So, you know, she she was in quite a different world in terms of she was right in the middle of the pop mainstream, you know. And then um, when she went to the States was a country artist, a country crossover artist, you know, and copped a lot of flack for that when she was winning a lot of awards and doing really well in country. And then you had people like Dolly Parton standing up for her saying, no, no, this girl's got something, leave her alone. So she was a, a different type of music, if you like, but just as pioneering in terms of, again, sheer talent and ability and really putting the work in. You know, we talk about overnight successes, but these things don't happen overnight. They happen over weeks and months and years worth of turning up and doing little gigs, big gigs, all the gigs in between. Yeah, and it was more than that in many ways with Olivia Newton-John, more than just the music. There was something about her, wasn't there, that that people really seemed to connect with. Yeah, well, I mean, people, and I mean, and I guess they say this about Judith too, this kind of idea of a girl next door or somebody who's very approachable or appealing. And both of them, of course, were both physically very beautiful women as well. But I think the thing about Olivia and Judith, if, if I can combine them a bit, is that people often underestimated them. And I don't doubt that both of them were stage managed because everybody is, Mm. of course. But I think both of them were very good at being or appearing at least unaffected, you know, and things like with Olivia, the way she persisted with her Australian accent. So the great story goes that when she was first approached to be Sandy in the movie musical version of Grease, because it had been on stage before, it was not an Australian character initially. And she was going to turn it down because she said, I can't do an American accent. And they wanted her so much. They said, great, we'll just make her Australian. Hmm. So it was that ability to kind of be true to your own, not just your own abilities, because I'm sure she could have learned, but it was more a case of, well, this is how I want to present myself. This is what I'm willing to do. And let's see how it works. And now... Who could imagine Sandy is anything other than Australian? Sandy! Teddy? What are you, what are you doing here? I, I, I thought you were going back to Australia. We had a change of plan. <laughs> well, that's cool, baby. And both of them really kind of forged this path through a, an industry that was so dominated by men. Well, I think, again, it comes down to that, I don't want to say like a, a quiet a quietness and a determinedness, but I think that probably is it. Again, to talk about how they appeared, they were both quite relatively small people physically. Um, which, and you can see that you see those, those kind of images of Judith Durham standing on the stage with the seekers and they tower over her, you know, but to be able to then still continue through and stay the line, if you listen to interviews with her, she's very, clear and direct, quite softly spoken, but has a lot to say. So I'm really struck. There was one interview she did only a few years ago where she was talking about what she thought her place in the industry was, not just at the time, but then the legacy 
of basically what music meant to people and what her role was to play. And I found it so insightful because she had really considered not just getting up and doing the thing, you know, singing the songs and remembering the lines and all of that stuff, which I I would feel overwhelmed by. I'm Mm. sure a normal person would just feel overwhelmed by the doing of it. But also, you know, the gravitas of what that meant to be part of people's lives. Again, for someone like her, I mean, you think about something like Morningtown Ride, for example, how many generations of Australian children over how many hundreds, thousands, millions of nights were sung to sleep by that song. How do you think they influenced the success of some of the Australian female artists who who came after them? Well, I think, I mean, it's demonstrating that it's possible and demonstrating that it's possible in your own way. So, again, in that interview, I was struck that Judith Durham had talked about not feeling pretty or pretty enough. And as soon as she said that, I was thinking Casey Chambers and that song, Not Pretty Enough. You know what I mean? And I think, okay, you could make a bit of a sonic comparison between them and say, okay, we're getting a sort of country, folky, gospel-y lineage, but also you're getting people who are not necessarily what, say, Hollywood is telling us women should appear as and yet doing it anyway and not just doing it anyway but doing it better. Same with Olivia, you know, there's, I mean, social media has been, you know, flooded by people with images of themselves and, and Olivia, just that gentle kind of under under her wing approach. So everybody from Kylie Minogue, a very young Kylie Minogue, you know, literally under Olivia's arm, we were seeing them together giving that kind of seal of approval saying, I've done it. I'm a Grammy Award winner. I've been standing up there next to John Travolta in the biggest movie musical of all time. I'm proof that it's possible. Liz Jeffrey, a senior lecturer in music and sound design at the University of Technology, Sydney. And that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Matt Bamford, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. Hope you have a good weekend. Listener.